which felt relieving. So I will read. I will re-say what Mary Lou said because it's a very important Dharma point, a meditation point in it. Thank you very much. That when when she first started this morning, to her dismay and alarm, or dismay more than alarm, she had uh, uh, lots of self-absorbed thoughts, and she thought this was going to be a long, hard day. But in the second time that we sat together with less uh, imperative to uh, stay with one particular thing and do it right, uh, her mind was more relaxed. And in fact, what came up were uh, creative thoughts. So I want to take that word creative and say, in fact, what I think that hap- what I think happens is that actually we know the neurology now of when the mind starts do- stops doing its linear thinking. It starts to do creative thinking which is much more um, images and pictures and whole gestalts. And people have been talking about this now for some decades, that when we are, uh, we're unlikely to write a symphony in the middle of balancing our checkbook, that, the, that we have the two sides of our minds, we figure out, okay, how will I get from here to here? That's not an inspiration. You look at a map and you figure it out and you feel what, what interchange you get off on. That when the mind is relaxed, it tends to be creative. And what I, I, I have really broadened my idea of what is creative from, I, I think, uh, when I began to practice, what my teachers said is the creative thing that you want to have is the direct, uh, intuitive uh, understanding of impermanence, of suffering, and of interconnectedness, those three characteristics of experience. Those are the really important, it's like going for the gold. That is really what you want to know. I, I think it is really what you want to know. And I think every other kind of creative new insight, a way of seeing your life and understanding it in a way that you have not understood it before, also counts. So if in a moment I have an insight about some piece of my psychodynamics that I haven't really understood before, and it's only my psychodynamics, it's not yours, or it's not the universal psychodynamics, that counts. And it is my mind doing its creative thing. It is my mind relaxed, taking what material is available to it, and offering it to me in a new way. People here who are therapists will know that an insight is not any new information that you didn't have before. It's just you, you, it comes together in a whole new way. say, so, oh... Look at that, I never saw that before. That, and the creative things, the impulse, like, I'll write, a, that's the line of a haiku, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, I'll redecorate my living room, it'll be, you know, I'll get rid of half the things in there, it'll be much more pleasant. Not to spend the whole day redecorating the living room. But all those kinds of thoughts are thoughts that happen when the mind is relaxing. It makes creative ideas. And one of the creative ideas it makes is that, that for me is the most important is that what I may have thought was really important isn't really like this grudge I was holding or this, this I was carrying on. One of the other creative ideas is it's okay. You know, that things work out. This is the way they are. You do the best you can. The totally banal dharma. That would be a good book to write.
one of the things about mindfulness is you get to see what the hardware is that's installed in the computer of your mind. Or what software is hardwired in, or however you say that. Um, not so long ago, I was driving home with my husband to the place that we live up in. We, li- we live in uh, rural northern Sonoma County. And uh, there's a, a bend in the road not far from where we live, probably in the last two miles from where we live, somewhere near there. We come around the bend in the road, and uh, I say, stop the car. I see that the dog that lives in that house right there has been wounded, probably got hit by, he, he got hit by a car, because there he is lying down, and you can see he's got his face on his paw, he's licking it, and you can see these marks here, these skid marks in the road and these dark marks. Yeah, stop the car. That dog and the and I also saw that the the truck that's usually parked in front of that house was not there. So as we come around the corner, I see this whole picture. The absence of a truck, the absence of people, the presence the presence of the dog licking his paw, the funny marks in the street. I say, Stop the car, that dog has been wounded. And he says, that dog is always lying in that same place, just like that. I said, no, 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 no. But usually he looks up, he's licking his paw, and he's not looking up, and he's not getting up. Probably he's been hurt. Let's go back, see these marks here on the street? I said, no, no, the dog is always lying there. It's just the same dog as always. I said, you have to stop the car, because if we don't go back, and this dog's people aren't there, I will feel terrible when I hear that something really we should have addressed ourselves to this dog problem. So we turn around the car, we drive back, drive into the driveway where the dog is lying. Dog stands up, comes over to the car, (laughs) wagging his tail, and dog is fine. I say, hurry up, get in the car, let's drive away before anybody comes back and finds us here in the driveway. So we get in the car and we drive away. So you always do that, you always see catastrophe where there's nothing happening. Say, well... I do always do that. That's just one of the things about me. Dogs lying in driveways, licking their paw, with a car missing. You know, there are skid marks in the street, but the, I mean, the car, hundreds of cars go down that street every day. They probably skid around that corner. Probably those marks are always there. My, mar, my mind looks at that material and puts it together in a certain way. Now, if I know that about my mind... I actually never found a wounded dog in that way in my life. I didn't overlook somebody who was sick. There is no deep psychological meaning to that story that I should have addressed myself to, but something catastrophic happened. I can't think of a, of a psychological reason to have that story. Uh, my mother didn't have that story. My father didn't have that story. I have that story. And I don't know how it got in there, but I know that it's there. That particular story that says, uh-oh, some tragedy might be happening here, and you better look out for it. It's just installed in my mind. It's a piece of hardware. It's installed, I like to think, that they're just stuff that's installed in there, like I'm a morning person. I like Mozart. I don't like celery. I don't think there's a deep hidden meaning in any of those things. They just are pieces of the hardware of my mind. And if I know about that, then I can live my life fairly comfortably. First of all, I don't have to order the stuff with celery in it. And I can organize my schedule so I teach in the morning. And I know which tickets to buy to the symphony. 
And when I see uh, <coughs> what looks to me to be a catastrophe in the making, I can address it if it seems a reasonable thing to address. I can also tell myself this might or might not be happening because you always think of that. I'm, I'm much better these days than I was, say, 20 years ago at finding myself in a place where I'm supposed to meet somebody, maybe one of my daughters, and I see it's 5 o'clock. They said 5 o'clock, they're not there. And in a second, my mind can invent something that's happened to them. How many people here have that same mind? See, it's, a, it's not an unusual thing, you know. Does my mind think, oh, she's met a friend, she's having a great conversation somewhere? No, it doesn't think that. How many people don't think that? See, it's about half and half people don't think that. I am so amazed that people have those kind of minds. I meet them and I think that they're just a different species of being, you know? It's another different breed of cat, that's all. It just does things differently. But if I know that about myself, I don't have to give myself a bad time. I don't have to berate myself. It's not a moral flaw. I didn't get this because you know because I deserved it or it's a revenge for something I did. It's just the way it is. And I can check things out, but I don't have to be as frightened as I used to. Oh, the end of the story is my, my, someone could not show up. I could look at my watch. I could think a catastrophic thought. And then I think, probably not. Probably not, because you've thought that already five million times. And it didn't happen. And of course, it's in the realm of the possible that this could be the time but probably not. And what's different is that I'm not as held hostage by the fear as I used to be. I used to really worry about things. How many people here have that worry ability? The way, the way, the, the way that that works is that the mind, that for whatever reason, has a lot of energy in it to fret. It's like, a, it's like someone brought up this morning about a sleepy mind. It's a mind with energy, not sleepy. It's like mind with energy to spare. It's looking for something to worry about. So it scans the horizon for possible catastrophic things. You know? It could be a good lookout. And I say, oh, there, I'll worry about that. My, my, you know, So-and-so, my cousin is having a baby. I worry, 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 worry. Get the phone call. Cousin's fine. Baby is out. Everybody's good. Phew. All right. Don't have to worry about that. Now, that was really silly to worry. I couldn't have helped that one way or another by the worry. Okay, I'm never going to worry again. And then shortly thereafter, something comes up in the mind about which you could worry. Do you, I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up. Is this true? Is this true? Is a mind on the prowl for a possible source of agitation. The, thing that I, the, th- the two things that have happened to me in my life, in my meditation career, that affect that is the first is I noticed that it's a piece of hardware or software wired in hard. It's just there. Some people have it. And I, I used to want so badly not to have it if I could have had a mindectomy or a <laughs> mind transplant. I wanted that thing rid of. When my children were adolescents, they didn't come home until late at night. Worry, 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 worry. When they come home, I'm really going to tell them what I thought of this. And then when you hear them coming up the driveway, you turn off the light. Because you don't tell them. Because you're really not mad. You're frightened. And as soon as the frightened goes away, the mad goes away. And you don't tell them. Because then they say, what's the matter with you, Ma? You know, don't you trust me? And you, don't, and you do, but you worry anyway. The first thing I noticed was that it was just a mind habit. It's a mind habit. And the second thing I noticed is that I couldn't have a mindectomy and that the habit <laughs> didn't go away. 
But where there was maneuverability was in my, uh, whether or not I was held hostage by that habit. That the habit could happen, and I did not have to respond to it. I could listen to it and say, look at that, so inventive. You know, sometimes <laughs> when I think, it, when I have a worrisome thought, that, you know, it's had to go to some lengths to think up what catastrophe could happen. I think it's so inventive. Maybe I should get a black belt in inventing catastrophe. And I also think to myself, it's so amazing that the mind is just so uh, loyal and consistent. It stays just like the way it is supposed to be. Like if you were born with a a square cookie cutter in your mind, it didn't suddenly become diamond shape or round. It is the same square cookie cutter the whole life but that you live with that cookie cutter and you know about it. And when the thought comes up, there's a, um, a mindfulness text that, uh, oh, I, I should have looked before I tell you about it because we probably have one or two copies in our bookstore. And it's one of my favorite books, Dharma books of all, of all the Dharma books. You can buy it online. It's called The Vision of Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, The Vision of Dhamma, which is the Pali way to say Dharma. It's written by a man named Nyanapanaka, um, who uh, died in the last decade in Sri Lanka. He was head of the Buddhist Publication Society. He died, he was nearly 100 when he died. He was born in Germany. He's a German Jew who went to university and in his early 20s went to uh, Sri Lanka to study Buddhism. He became a monk. And he became a Mahatera, which means really um, very high up monk in the hierarchy of monks, and wrote beautiful things. And The Vision of Dhamma is a collection of essays that he wrote. And one of those essays is called The Power of Mindfulness. And it's one of my favorite essays about how mindfulness works. And it has four ways in which mindfulness works. And the first way, which is the way that I mean to talk about is that it tidies the mind. I love that. It's called tidying the mind. I think to myself, I wonder if you wrote that in German first. And then, because it's a, it's a very old word, tidy. Nobody says, I'm going home to tidy. They say, I'm going home to clean. But tidy is a certain way. Anybody here thinks of themselves as tidying ever? You know, I guess you do. Yeah, yeah. But I think to myself, I think Nyanapanaka is envisioning his mother because I'm thinking of a German housewife of 100 years ago Probably tidied. You know, you tidy every day. You straighten up things. He talked about mindfulness as tidying the mind, organizing it so you see what's there. So you see where I'm going. As if I know that that piece of hardware is in my mind, I, you know, it's like having a certain piece of furniture in my living room that I don't exactly like, but it was given to me by my great aunt, so I can't move it out. So I have to know how to walk around that piece of furniture so as not to trip over it. And to, but I have to know that it's there so I don't trip over it. Maybe I can design the room so that it's not in the centerpiece of the room. So that particular idea of mindfulness, being able to notice what is there, the other, one of the other four um, qualities of mindfulness is that it tidies, it organizes, it names things, and it is not coercive. It does not insist that anything be other than what it is. It's not thinking, oh, there is my tidying, there is my catastrophizing mind, I need a mindectomy. It's saying, oh, look at that, just made another catastrophe. That's really interesting. Look at that. It never quits. It just keeps on. That somehow it keeps a friendly 
accepting mood about what's in there. Somebody I talked to at lunch today, a friend of mine, said that the mind is like pasta when it starts with it's brittle. But if you work with it for a while, if you cook it <laughs> with attention, it gets soft, and then you can push it around a little bit <laughs> and say, here's my hardware. But I'm moving around it. It doesn't matter. While, I, while we had that conversation, it was a very culinary conversation about pasta being malleable. I told him about my other friend who said the mind is actually like tofu, and uh, it has no taste of its own. I think this is probably true. It has no taste of its own, and what you marinate it in <laughs> determines what it tastes like. And that if you marinate it in sweetness, it, it uh, reflects itself in sweetness. So tofu you can also always push around. So Nyanapanaka and noticing the heart, the, the installations of the mind. Like, can you think of things that are in your mind that are just installed there? Like, uh, who here would say about themselves, uh, you know, I have a short fuse. Anybody here has a short fuse? Easily irritable? Yeah, good, good. I mean, it's just one of those things that people have. One of my teachers said, the best things is when you can say about yourself, I have uh, a short fuse. Uh, that's one part of my, and the sky is blue. So it's in the same, it's in the same thing. I don't like celery. I like Mozart. I'm easily, um, uh, I, I worry easily, and I'm short. I mean, those are just things <laughs> that, you know, but not to put a value judgment on it. I have a short fuse. Anybody? Here is a, here is a story. And then we'll sit again. We were going to sit. But it's a, it's a worthwhile story to tell. It's actually, it's, it's one that, anyway, it happened a few years ago. Maybe I told you. I didn't tell it today, though. So uh, Somebody came on a Wednesday morning and said, we have Wednesday morning class, which you are welcome to come to anytime you like, by the way. You do not have to sign up or register or do anything in advance. You just show up. You don't have to sign up or register when you come either. It's like church. You just come. Uh, Wednesday morning class, someone came and said, uh, yesterday morning, she said, I live in San Francisco. Yesterday morning I came out of my apartment building and I went to get in my car. And I noticed the key hole was lower than usual. And I looked around and my tires were gone. And my car was standing on the... On the on the hubcaps, and someone had stolen my car tires in the night. So she said, "So uh, I live uh, two blocks from Stonestown." She said, I was so upset. She said, "I uh, went to Stonestown. I bought the silk pajamas that were in the windows of Nordstrom's <laughs> that I had been looking at and coveting for a few weeks, and then I went home and I called the police." And. <laughs> It makes perfect sense in the context of the understanding that everybody has different ways in which their mind copes with challenge <laughs> is the meaning of that particular story. Because someone else said at that point, they said, you did that? They said, I would never do that. I would go in immediately. I would find the superintendent of my building. I would give her a really bad time. I would say, look, you get paid to be minding the street, to make sure the street is a safe thing. What are you doing? And then I would have gone to work and give everybody there a bad time because if I'm upset, I have every reason in the world to let everybody else have a piece of my mind. Somebody else, now catching on to the trend, said, uh, you know, 
I would that kind of thing blows me away. I can't deal with it. I would have gone back into my house. I would have called up my work and said, "Listen, I my tires were stolen. This has you know it just blows me out of the water. I can't deal with this. I have to deal with the police. I have to file a report. Forget about my coming in today. I'll come tomorrow." As I got way too much to do, I can't do it. And I said, I would have stayed home, you know, called the police, rested up, and then the next day I go. But that sort of thing. Someone else said, you know, I would have thought immediately, today the tires, tomorrow the car. So it's really a dangerous thing. You see, that, that, that I am definitely in that category, of, you know. If the, uh, and if you know the five categories that the Buddha taught for ways that the mind responds to challenge, you will know what the fifth person said. What do you think the fifth person said? Who knows the fifth category of ways to respond to challenge? Fifth person said, I would have said to myself, once again, you made a wrong decision. (laughs) By renting in this house, you should have checked out the neighborhood. You should have known that the fifth of those five ways that the Buddha outlined, he said, we all have challenges. And everybody copes. Everybody copes. Everybody who's in this room has coped with their life one way or another from the beginning till today because everybody got out of bed today and came. And everybody had innumerable challenges probably every day. And we coped sometimes probably quite well. And we all have different styles of coping. So style A is uh, people who, uh, whose mind is calmed by sensual soothing. I could have said I went and bought the silk pajamas. I went to the corner and had a double latte with a cinnamon bun and read the paper. And then I went home and called the police. Or um, there are lots of other ways to sensually soothe. I called a friend. I talked on the phone. Took a bubble bath. Then none of those are bad things to do. I mean, if you're supposed to be going to work in the day, they might not be so, you know, the best choice. But... And some people get annoyed and they get mad. So there's the, the response of lust, the response of anger, the response of, um, uh, what's it called, torpor, running out of steam, um, the response of uh, uh, frenetic mind, worrying, uh-oh, if this means that, 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 and the response of self-doubt, I shouldn't have done that, I can't depend on myself. How many people, if we were to have a little support group and say, okay, you're going to be in your group of favorite hindrances, how many people would be going to buy the pajamas, <laughs> drinking the hot chocolate, having a cigarette? Okay, okay, there you go. How many people uh, are getting angry and saying, shouldn't have happened, I pay my rent, where is that superintendent, da da da, da. okay. How many of the people who say, I can't deal with it today? It's, it's, okay. Where are the people who say, um, today, the, uh, today the tires, tomorrow the car, this is a, really a dangerous place? How many people are saying, once again, I made a wrong decision? Oh, that's a big group. So if you could be in a support group, were you sitting next to anybody who raised their hand just the way you did? Uh-huh. Okay, for the next four minutes, pick a partner next to you, anyone next to you, but not someone that you are married to or partnered with or anything else. Turn around and get somebody else that you don't know 
Get a partner. I get a partner. Any partner. If you cannot find a partner, we'll do three people. Wait, 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 wait. You don't know what you're doing yet with that partner. <laughs> you figured out what you're doing with the partner. Okay. Are you with Mark? Okay. So here you are with a partner. You figured out then with the partner that what you're going to do is who is person A and who is person B? Person A, raise a hand in each group, okay? So person B is the other person in the group, right? <laughs> person B will now tell person A which of those categories they most identified with and how they deal with it the best or the most. And then I'll ring the bell and person A will tell person B. All you have to do is listen, person A, okay? Person B, ready, set, go. <laughs> I did that and I threw over the water. Which category did you think you were? Which of those were you? You know, I was telling her that I don't I really can't tell because when I was in college I had my tires slashed in my car. At first I thought it was me. And then I looked up the street and all 30 cars were stuck, and I felt incredible relief. <laughs> and between those two states, I can't really identify. <laughs> first I'm struck with fear, and then I'm struck with relief. <laughs> Alexandria said that maybe the relief was a form of self-soothing. <laughs> and I said, well, it's not quite like buying chocolate. So now the other person is telling you. Person A is now telling person B.
Okay, we have one more thing to do. One more thing to do, which you can do with your one partner, or you could do two partners with two partners. You can do it in little groups of four. Now we're widening out the thing. What I'd like you to talk about is what, not what did you say, but what did you learn as a result of that? Think of what, figure out what did you learn as a result of that share that you could say in one sentence or one phrase. You can do it with your one person or you can do it three or four people together. You get two minutes to figure out what did you learn. Thank you, Lynn. Tell her to ask. <laughs> so, So I can first of all see that uh, nobody does not have an opinion on this. Do you know the names of the people that you talk to? You don't have to, but you might ask them. Because if you had a good time with them, we'll do something with a buddy in about 10 minutes again or 20 minutes again. So what did you learn? One, stand up where you are, say your one-sentence thing that you learned, and let's, this is a compendium of joint knowledge. What did you learn? Any, no, no, there you go. Somebody over there. <laughs>
because we both shared our backgrounds. We both happen to be Jewish. We can tell us something to do with it. I don't think it's funny. Yeah. I don't, I'm not saying that as, as a joke. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Okay, so maybe, so this is a very important point. I'm, I'm trying to find your name in my mind. Sheila, Sheila thank you. Um, this is a very important point. Well, I, think, I think two things are true, Sheila. I think we are born with predispositions one way or another. I think depending on the family and the circumstances that we are born into, our predispositions get hardwired in, they get made bigger and exaggerated, or they get minimized. I, I'm, I don't know if we can entirely change how we are, but I, think, I, th I certainly think that we are, uh, uh, we are uh, a combination of genetic predisposition and what happened to us. And one of the things, by the way, that's very interesting to me is the current literature on the plasticity of the mind. You might want to look at books by um, Daniel Siegel, one of them called The Developing Mind. Uh, Daniel Siegel is a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist, uh, also tremendously versed in neurobiology. Uh, and a researcher in uh, meditation and uh, the changes in the mind. The, there's a tremendous and very exciting uh, inter-conversation happening now between people with meditation backgrounds and the scientists talking about what actually happens, not in the moment of meditation that the mind is relaxed, but actually something about neuroplasticity and the way in which the mind can actually get changed over time, in a minor way, and uh, in a minor way, just to remember back the story that I told you about one aspect of myself. It's not the main aspect of myself, but the aspect of make a catastrophic thought. That in between the thought arising, which it just happens, and the uh, adrenaline rush that fires more and more thoughts and more and more alarm. If there's a thought in between, oh, this is just my mind pattern happening, then the whole rest of it doesn't have to happen. So maybe the thought has to happen because the thought happens. And then after this, oh, okay, that's just that thought. And uh, like Barbara said before, you can just wave it aside. It's not that big of a deal. Or it was was not Barbara, it was, what was your name? I am you are Barbara who said that. You are Barbara. This is Mary Lou who said the other thing. This is Barbara. This is Mary Lou. Okay. Uh, so this is a very important point. And uh, just, on, just on that point of um, it's, uh, it's a serious thing, uh, ethnicity, and the various ways in which each of us with our own ethnicities comes with the blessings and the burdens of that ethnicity and how it has played out in our lives. Um, okay, who else? What did your group think? Well, Chris, my name's Chris, and um, I, I think one of the things I learned, we, we all reflected back on our own experiences and each other's stories, but that I, I work with kids who have behavioral problems, and I know that sometimes that they need either a an object to self-soothe, an action to self-soothe, or a thought that can self-soothe. 
And I was thinking about the woman's story, the first one that she walked two blocks. That was self-soothing, too, before she actually purchased something yeah. sensual, before she came back from Adele. So there was a whole lot of activity in there that helped her self-soothe in that process. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, that there's a lot of sort of thought that goes into how we talk, talk to ourselves about what happened. Mm -hmm. But I bet that she was mad as she was walking, too. Mm -hmm. It's just that that's what she did when she was mad. Mm -hmm. So um, so we all had our own thoughts and stories about what we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. So two things, Chris, that I want to take away from there and continue. One of them is the flavor is is the point about soothe. Soothe is a tremendously important word. My friend um, Steve Cope, who many of you may know as, a, as a, um, an outstanding yoga leader, teacher in this country, and uh, has written a wonderful book on transformation through yoga practice, uh, uses the expression safely held and soothed, that the mind needs to feel safely held and soothed for it to be able to look around and see what's actually happening and then make the decision. So I like that very much. Also, Chris, you use the sentence, um, what stories we choose to tell ourselves. So after we do this, I'll tell you about really watching the stories that we choose to tell ourselves. I have an, I, I have an image in my mind, something about, have you ever been in the... Um, have you ever been in the producer's studio of a television broadcast? Well, you ever see it on TV? You see the people sitting behind the scenes. You don't see them on camera. But the people sitting in the producer's studio watching all these screens and all these cameras saying close up on camera three, back off camera three, in on camera four, that there's, there's a way in which the mind chooses to zero in on something or something or something. And I'll maybe tell you a story a little bit later on about how when you see that it's doing that, you get a choice of saying, back off the story, tell this one instead. But what else? What else did you learn from your groups? Thank you, Chris. What else? All those groups. There. <laughs> that all the time I spend in self-soothing before I deal with the issue, if I wouldn't spend so much time with that, I just dealt with it, I could just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, wait a minute. What's your name? Heidi. Heidi. I have to tell you the great... I, I always like at this point to, to invoke my friend uh, Richard Bolton, no longer on this plane of existence. I loved him a lot. He was my friend for many years, who when he heard me, uh, who lived up in Portland, and I was teaching there not so long ago and telling this very exercise, and after everybody got finished, he said, I don't, know, I don't get this. He said, I would go in... I would call the cops, I would make a report, and I would go to work. Now, the truth is, most of us would go in, call the cops, make a report, and go to work. This is an exaggerated kind of an example. But we all recognize the piece of us that if we did the exaggerated, that's how we do Most of us are pretty wise. Most of us get about our business and do it. And Heidi is bringing it up about most of us, you know, when we think about it, we say fooey and we do it, whatever it is that we're going to do. But uh, what we are looking for is the way that the mind reacts. And in between the reaction time and saying, okay, now I call the cops and make a report and I go to work. It's you have to pull the mind back or the attention back from where it's gotten pulled off. 
I think what happens, I see this very spatially in my mind, although it is completely a made-up idea. The mind is not a space, and it doesn't sit here and look out of these eyes. It's a concept, okay? It's a, the consciousness doesn't sit in my body. I don't know if it sits on my shoulder or where it is or whatever. But I have the sense that we get knocked off center, that something happens and it startles me and I get knocked off my perspective of seeing things clearly. Um, you lose your balance and you don't see things clearly. And then, in, unless you wait until you get your balance back, you might act out of the moment, like shout at somebody or say some invective or tell somebody something that you're sorry you said later. And you might do all kinds of things because you've lost your balance. And if you could wait, get your balance and think, okay, what do I want to do now? It would come better. But, you know, all of us are always losing our balance. I think of meditation practice as continually catching the balance back again, returning to equilibrium, which is not blah. It's balanced. That's what equilibrium means. It is balanced. And it doesn't mean balanced an equal amount of up and down emotions. It means balanced and being able to see what is there and being able to hold it. You can say, I am distressed as all get out. Anyway, what else did you learn from your groups before you forget what you learned from your groups? <laughs> then. Well, I just want to share with you because I said the same thing. Um, I'd call the cops and I'd go to work. And I couldn't relate to any of this. And all of a sudden I saw it and it was a McDonald's thing, McFlurry with M&M's. <laughs> so I, I found it in the, on the reverse end. After it's all done, then the self-soothes. <laughs> <laughs> and people soothe in different ways. And it's not a bad thing to soothe. I mean, that doesn't sound like soothe is something. Soothe is fine. I mean, there are a lot of ways that are soothing that are not so wholesome to do, but most of the things we do like, you know, have a double latte or call a friend or are fine things to do, or even buy the pajamas if we can afford the pajamas. They're an all right thing to do. It's always a question of saying, how will I, how can I respond with compassion and caring in this moment? What's going to be good for me and everyone? What else? We had at least 75 groups here. I'm Robert. Uh... First, I think it would be a colorful metaphor before the word unbelievable. And, and then it would be AAA and then the police, because I think I'd get my car running quicker than calling the police first. <laughs> and I've had an uncanny uh, set of experiences around automobiles my whole life where it's always been a pretty interesting adventure, and it always works out to the best. Mm -hmm. So I think part of me would be kind of curious What's going to show up and how's this day going to complete? <laughs> and what choices am I going to have here to uh, get it done? Uh -huh. I mean, at a, at a point in time, I still got to get done. It's still sitting there up on blocks. So. And, <laughs> so, and I think it's just a range of my choices, uh -huh. how I want to. So, Robert, Robert, the key thing that Robert is saying is that when we look at a situation, any situation, clearly, we say, what are my choices? What can I do here? Mostly, uh, there are a lot of choices. Sometimes our situation is dire, and then we don't have choices. Then we have to say, okay, this is happening. I wish it wasn't, but it is. All those planes falling down, people dying of illnesses. We still have the possibility 
presumably, to at least meet an end without rancor, without being mad at that. And here comes the end. I have two ways to meet it. But seeing the possibilities, what are the possibilities in this moment? What else from our 75 groups? There you go. I'm, I'm Kelly. Um, I think my reaction, and uh, it was, I've, I, I would have a couple different reactions. I think a lot for me it depends on, you know, was that, you know, did I, like, this never happened to me, but did I get laid off earlier in the week? Am I having family problems? Is this a capper to like a bad week or something? Or, you know, am I doing pretty well? Did I get promoted? And now this happens, so who cares, you know? And I think a lot depends on what else is going on in my life. I think this is absolutely a very important, Kelly, did everybody hear Kelly what he said? It's a very important uh, piece of understanding that no event falls on an empty blackboard, that everything falls on whatever the situation is. You all know that. You have a bad, difficult time going on in your life. We have those expressions. This is the final straw, you know. That uh, and and other times when you're really up about something, something happens. You say, "Well, you know, that happens." That when the mind is really buoyed up, it has much more room in it. It's more uh, malleable. Somebody had the in in uh, uh, the expression which I like very much. They said, the walls of my mind were so expansive that I could not find any hook to hang my story on. Oh. <laughs> Which is really, it's a nice thing to think. Because you have a story, poor me, woe is me, this always happens to me. Well, I do nice. If, I, if the walls of my mind are big enough, I have no room to hang my story on. So they just disappear up into the air. What's, we're going to go back to Chris and what story you tell to yourself about things, what stories we choose to tell. What else? Thank you, Kelly. What else? Well, we talk about what we would do, and it involved fixing the situation. But I think for me that the way I would soothe myself is by jumping right in over-functioning and taking care of it right away because mm -hmm. I would want to stave off that feeling of being a victim, uh -huh. whether it was random or intentional or whatever. Just I want to do something on my own behalf. Uh-huh. And what it wouldn't occur to me, so I might, like, call the police, make the report, call the big old tires, get the guy with the tires out there, and get it fixed and go to work. And because I'm not going to let it ruin my day or something like that. And what I wouldn't do is stop and say, hmm, I could get the tires tomorrow. I yeah. could, you know, instead uh -huh. I would try to uh -huh. sort of power on through. Uh -huh. But I think it still falls in that, uh, somehow in that self-doubt because it's somehow it's all up to me and I need to do it mm -hmm. maybe I did something wrong and that's why it happened in the first place <laughs> you know, but I will uh, power through I think the I forgot your name Marty I think. Marty and the one of the important things Marty is to say this is the way I do it so that we any of us know you know not with no judgment call about it this is the way I handle those kind of things. And without any other judgment on anybody else's mind, what a good way or a bad way, oh, you shouldn't push yourself so hard. It's the way you do it, and it works. And to be able to see it, the, uh, the thing that I think is so helpful to me is that once I see this is my habitual way of doing it, it, uh, it allows me to maybe sometimes not do it in that way 
if it doesn't work. So suppose it's a day that Big O is closed, Sunday, Big O is closed, and this is not working and that's not working. On such and such a day, when the Sunday, when you can't buy the tires and you can't do the this and you can't do the that, to be able to say, you know what? I'm not in charge. Um, I'll go buy the silk pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go buy the silk pajamas. I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll do something else. It'll happen tomorrow. It's not, um, this is not as important as I think it is. That uh, my Or I can be comfortable with my tires waiting till tomorrow. The whole thing is, can my mind make itself comfortable with whatever the challenge is? Uh, personal illness, personal loss, something, you know, in our life we're always accommodating. You know, do you ever think about this? I got an invitation this year from uh, my friend Beatrice, who's 94 now, I think, and uh, just moved into an assisted living place. And she's lived on her own until now. She's an artist, but she really needs to live in an assisted living for her more frail health now. So she wrote me a, a card. She's an artist, and her handwriting is getting a little shaky. And she said, please come uh, to visit me. I'm living now in such and such an assisted living in San Rafael. She said, I wish you would come and um, teach, a, uh, teach a, a seminar here in meditation. I could really use it. She said, we could all really use it. She said, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new circumstance. So, in fact, I went and taught there, and that's a whole other story. The whole other story is that the truth is that this, you teach the same thing to 90-year-old people in assisted livings as you teach the whole life, only louder, because <laughs> only louder, only louder, but you teach the same thing because everybody is having trouble adjusting to their situation. That is a story about life. I'm having trouble adjusting to my situation. From the beginning, we are having trouble. It's one long adjust to the situation from the beginning. And it's not, it's a, that's not a, like, because we're doing it wrong. Because when you think about it, most of my grandchildren, some not, but most of them, had a hard time going to preschool. They had a hard time leaving their mother. They had to adjust to that. Then they had to adjust. <laughs> my granddaughter, who's finishing kindergarten now, was worried before it started, and her mother saw her in the back of the car uh, looking worried just in the week previous to the kindergarten. I said, are you all right? She said, no, I'm worried. I said, what's the matter? I said, I'm worried about, uh, you know, she'd been to preschool for two years. She said, I don't know what it's like in the kindergarten. I won't know where to hang my coat and where to put my lunchbox and what to do with my work. And, and I thought to myself, well, she definitely has a family gene. So I that. But and I was very pleased that she could articulate it because her mother could say to her, when you get there, they'll tell you where to put your coat and your lunchbox. But we're all getting used to our new situation. And you get to be a teenager, you get to be used to your new body doing all these strange things. And then you have to get used to having a relationship with somebody if you want to have a relationship with somebody. And then if you have a family, you have to get used to having a family and living with different people and raising them up. And if you have a family, you have to get used to them growing up and moving out. And then you have to get used to having an empty nest. And then you have to get used to your body getting old and you have to get used to your friends starting to die. We are all getting used to accommodating to our new situation all the time. 
And I think that that actually is the, 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 the reason I want to tell you that, is because all of these ways that we do it are variations of wholesome, that we find out ways that are wholesome ways to soothe ourselves, to make ourselves comfortable. Meditation is one of those wholesome ways. It gives the mind a rest. I think we did not really sit this afternoon. I think, I think we've been sitting here for an hour, and we began by saying, we're going to meditate, and we didn't. You know what I also think about when I, when I think about it? I think about that some of you have come from a long way, and if we sat quietly for long periods of time, you could have done it at home. I do. Don't you think so? I mean, that if you've come from somewhere, that I'm, I'm obligated to teach a little bit. Is that right or wrong? I mean, <laughs> We'll sit a little bit, but I will. <laughs> we'll sit a little bit. But here's the instruction for this sitting. This is the best instruction for sitting that I, this is my favorite instruction for sitting. This, this is a very good instruction. This is an instruction I credit Ajahn Amaro, who's one of our teaching faculty, who says the instructions shorter than anyone. He says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and let it stay that way. Only stay alert to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. And I love that. Built into it is the notion that the mind left to its own natural devices is peaceful. We stir it up with our stuff, with our conditioning. Not purposely. Nobody gets up in the morning and thinks, okay, now I'm going to wreck up my mind state. But we have all different ways in which we are conditioned to pick up stuff and run with it and make a big story out of different things. Put it down. We'll sit for, um, we'll sit for 10 minutes. Have us of practice, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and stay there. Pay attention to what's happening. Don't get stuck. Some thought comes in and makes an attempt to seduce your mind. Don't do it. Put it down. It's easier if you smile. peace and ease. Don't pick up anything that goes by. How was that?
I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> what did you think? Yeah. Barbara. This one, with letting things go by and continuing to do that, at one point I thought, oh, it seems like a long time, and then the thought was gone, and I, it just, it felt very relaxing. Mm-hmm. My whole body felt very relaxed. It's a little bit, of Barbara's saying her whole body felt more relaxed. It's a little bit, it's more relaxing than uh, the instruction, notice everything that's happening. This is a little bit of a variation. It's notice the figure ground reversal. You know, notice the peace and ease out of which things come up, and notice the uh, movement of the mind to grab onto something, and notice the intention not to do it, and to put it down. I want to talk about that really because it has to do with right effort, right intention, that piece of the path. The one piece we've we've talked about composing the mind through concentration sharpening the mind through mindfulness, what's really happening, and what are my options. The other piece, which I mentioned this morning, I think is the underspoken hero of the Eightfold Path, is right effort, the ability to see what's coming up and say, no, thank you, I don't want that, I'm not doing that right now. Um, I want to come back to that in a minute, but someone else was going to say something about their experience. Uh-huh. So, um, and so at one point I decided to shout it down. So you know, so I was like and I realized that that was not being productive, but how do you I how do you let go of that neural chatter? I mean just the thought, 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 yeah. thought, thought. I actually it's a very good question. What's your name? Judith. Judith. How did what about all the chattering in the mind? It's just talking away this and that and that and that. One of the ways uh, that I think about this morning, remember when we did the four foundations of mindfulness, and I said notice the, the climate of your mind, that it's one thing to get involved in the chatter, and it's another thing to say, my mind is chattering away. It's just chattering away. That, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not coercive. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to stop when you say breathe, breathe. You're really trying to push that out. Of course, the more you push it out, if you push it out the door, it comes in the window. You know, it's not going to get pushed out. You say, wow, my mind is really full of chatter. Look at that. Really. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. The chattering can continue. I actually think that the, the thought machine in the mind or in the wherever it is, is uh, reminds me very much like the popcorn machine in the lobby of movie theaters. If you watch the popcorn machine, especially the spinning around kind, they spin around and they popcorn and they blow it out in all these directions and all over the place. And I think my, my mind does that same thing. It makes thoughts about things. It makes thoughts about everything. It's got commentary on this and that. When it runs out of what's happening now, it remembers this morning, it plans tomorrow. It's just on its own. And there isn't much I can do except notice what it's doing and not, and not treat it as an adversary. And they say, well, that's what it's doing. Would I rather that my mind was not filled of thoughts and it was just filled 
with a sense of peace and every once in a while the thought, some benevolent thought flowed by. If I could program my mind, I would program more benevolent thoughts and less chatter. But if I've got chatter, you know, mindful of chatter. Uh, you know what, there is, uh, first of all, I think so. Uh, uh, yes, I think so. Also, when it's stirred up, like it's chattering about something that I'm upset about. Here's a story. It reminds me of a story, so I'll tell you the story. Because it's about choosing. The mind gets stirred up, and it's not just the chatter of chatter, it's a chatter of irritation. Really what I want to talk about, I want to go back and spend this next hour talking about um, the idea that the mind could not be in contention with its experience. Um, A friendly mind, having a benevolent, uh, meeting every situation with benevolence. We talk about metta practice, we talk about meeting people with benevolence. I would like to meet my life with benevolence and not be mad at it. So not so long ago, I got a uh, a uh, ticket for driving in the um, what do you call that lane uh, in the carpool lane, uh, which I didn't know that they had started a carpool lane outside of Santa Rosa, and uh, it was uh, February last year or the year before, but in February I remember. So it was dark early. It was a rainy at late afternoon. I didn't see that it was a carpool lane. I was driving in the carpool lane. Uh, and actually, my daughter had called me on the phone, so I have a hands-free phone. But I was talking on the phone, wasn't paying good attention, driving in the carpool lane. I suddenly realized in the carpool lane, I say, uh-oh, I'm in a carpool lane. I have to get out of here. Just when the, the flashing lights of the police car are behind me, pull me over to the side. I say, officer, really, I didn't know that they had installed this carpool lane. It was a mistake. I, really, my daughter had called me with a crisis. I was trying to pay attention to the driving. I probably shouldn't have told them I was on the phone to begin with. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, you know, it was a mistake. I drive here all the time. I didn't see that there's a carpool lane. He said, uh, can I see your driver's license and registration? Given the driver's license and registration, I watch him out of the uh, rearview mirror and I see he's making a phone call. I think to myself, good, he's going to find out I've got a clean record, and he's going to let me go. So he comes back, and he gives me a ticket. And he said, uh, it's not a uh, moving violation. It's just a uh, whatever it is. It's a fine. It's not a moving violation. So it won't go on your record. But it is $270, you know. So actually, 340 it says minimum 270 but it's 340 when it comes through. So I'm thinking to myself, where were you 10 minutes ago when that green Corvette was doing 80 miles an hour, zigging and zagging between the lanes? Here I am driving along. Anyway, so now I'm, my mind is really mad. I, he, he says, be careful as you drive back onto the highway. <clears throat> Get into the lane slowly. He zooms off. I drive back on. As soon as I'm back driving again, my mind takes up that irritation. Where was he when that green Corvette... And then it goes to the next to the last irritation. If that meeting at Spirit Rock had not taken so long and why people continue endlessly on a small topic, if they had finished and didn't talk so long on that topic, I would have been up here while it was still light and before the carpool lane was working. I'm fuming over that. And 
why was she calling me while I was in the car? In the meantime, my daughter calls back, what happened? I said, listen, I got a ticket. Oh, it's my fault. I'm so sorry. I said, never mind. It happened. I'll call you later. People shouldn't call on the telephone. <laughs> and I'm driving home. And I drive on the highway almost till when I'm home. And I get off about six miles from where I live. And then it's all curvy road. You already know about the curvy road with the dog that lies in the driveway. On that same curvy road, it goes between vineyards, back and forth and back and forth and up and down. And I'm driving along and I'm rehearsing various ways that I'm going to tell my tale of woe when I get home about what a bad day I had. And I, was, I realized I could listen to my mind. That's why I was thinking about close up on camera three, you know, get the quarterback's girlfriend in the, you know, in the stands on camera four. What you want to focus on really is, and I watched my mind try on various, you know, where should camera three, camera four, should I start with the, uh, the, with the police, uh, where are the cops where you, when you need them, and uh, the cell phones are a menace, and I can't believe what stuff people talk about at meetings endlessly. All, uh, trying out all these possible beginnings of, of how I'm going to present myself when I get home. And just then, I come around a corner, and a jackrabbit flies out of the b bank at the one side of the, jumps out of the bank on one side of the road, and miraculously, I slam on my brakes, and miraculously, the jackrabbit sails over the hood of my car <laughs> and lands over here. So, First of all, I was so relieved not to have run over the jackrabbit. And also, it was like a, a miracle. This jackrabbit just zoom up in the air and over the car. And it was so uplifting. It was a great sight. So I thought about, you know, I, I had the possibility, I was now three minutes from home, of leading with the jackrabbit story. <laughs> but... You know, in, in, in media, they tell you to start with the, you know, the most gory and the, the, the most terrible because it, you know, it, it's the mo it gets the most attention. If you watch the news at night, the most gory and the most terrible gets the attention. And I realized as I was driving that the, real the reason I was rehearsing, which was the most dramatic entry to the story, is that I was tired I was embarrassed about having gotten a $270, You know, I could anticipate going to come home and saying, I just got a $270, which turned out to be a $340 <laughs> ticket for driving in the carpool lane. And I could already hear, you know, oh, what kind of mindfulness is that? Tell me. So <laughs> could anticipate the humiliation. And I was humiliated about it. What kind of mindfulness was that? And it wasn't. So I, so I realized I was trying to cover up for my error. I was embarrassed about it, and I was tired, and I was hungry. And I came in, and I said, you know, you, you tell the news straight. You come in, you say, I just saw a fabulous jackrabbit, and I got a ticket for $270, and I am really tired, and I am really hungry, and let's fix dinner. And that was the end of it. But I realized that the mind is always zeroing in on camera three or camera four and saying, which piece of news do I want to go with now? And that piece of news is what colors your whole mood. It was a relief for me to see that I could pick the jackrabbit story because when I gave up the other news, I realized that I was telling that news to cover up for the feeling behind it. 
I'm embarrassed, I feel foolish, I feel stupid. I mean, really, what kind of mindfulness is that? You know, it's mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness is you pay attention to what's going on. In that moment, I wasn't paying exactly good attention. So that, that's the end of that. That's not, but to watch how the mind doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to feel humiliated, does this instead, makes it worse. You do it straight, you tell the truth. It's not a problem. So I tell you that because I, it, it's, it, it is, I think, an example of we create our reality even before we compose the mind and get it calmed down a little bit or we try to see clearly the, the, the choice of I will not go with that unwholesome, I'm going to go with the wholesome, I'm going to try to lift up my mind, I try to choose what will pick it up. I'll, pick, I'll start with the jackrabbit. Life is amazing and... All these other things happen. They all happen. They're all truth. It's how you plan to present it. It's the life is amazing. People all are trying to feel good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.